Thank you very much. Please take a seat, grab a Bible, and turn to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. The message today is entitled, The Theology of Temptation. Three weeks ago, uh, we began a verse-by-verse journey through the book of James. I begun by preaching chapter 1, verse 1, that set set the stage for the book. Then I took the next unit of thought, verses 2 to 12, and explained it in two separate messages called A Lesson on Suffering. Those are posted to the website if you haven't heard those yet. Today, we arrive at a text that is very foundational and practical. Today, you will learn about the theology of temptation. You'll find answers to questions like, where does temptation come from? What is God's role in temptation? And if we give in to temptation, where does it lead us? But before we begin to seek those answers, I want to remind you a little of the background that I taught you three weeks ago. Uh, written by James, the oldest half-brother of Jesus. The epistle was written in the first century, about the middle of the first century which means it's known to be the earliest written book of the New Testament canon. The epistle was written in a time when the church was brand new, and there were very few established local churches. And in fact, contrary to most of Paul's letters, this letter is not written to a local church, like the Corinthians, or a network of local churches in a certain region, like Galatians. It's written to a general group of Jewish believers scattered throughout Palestine. Now, who remembers the main point, or the thesis, or the theme? Anybody? What? No. Faith works. True faith works. True faith works. That is the theme of this book. In other words, James lays out a series of tests that provide the standard to judge the genuineness of your salvation. The epistle is considered considered the Proverbs of the New Testament because of its emphasis on wisdom and practicality. It complements Paul's emphasis on justification by faith alone, sola fide, remember, by focusing on the practical outworking of your faith. Okay, works do not save us, right? We've established that very clearly. Works do not save us, but our faith does produce good works. Our good works are a result of our saving faith, not the cause of it. So therefore, this book is like an instruction manual for Christians about how he or she ought to act. Now, in this text before us this morning, James 1, 13 to 15, we find two basic truths about the theology of temptation to help us think and respond accurately to the temptation we all face in everyday lives. How many of you face temptation? So I hope this sermon will help. Let's look at the first truth. The first truth about temptation is that temptation does not come from God. Temptation does not come from God. Verse 13. 
James says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. So let's unpack this. James says, let no one say. This is the kind of language that is similar to what we saw up in verse 5. In verse 5, he said, let him ask God. Remember, it, that's not an, uh, a, a, a kind little uh, chunk of advice. It's a command. James commands believers in suffering to pray. And now James is commanding somebody not to think or believe or say something very specific. It could actually be translated, I forbid anyone to say when he is tempted. Now the word tempt, it translates the same Greek word that is translated trial in verses 2 and 12. I explained that a little bit last time. And I explained the proper translation is totally dependent on what? That C word that we all should love and remember all the time. Context. Okay? It, can't, it, it can't always be rendered trial or temptation because there is a huge difference between being tested and being tempted. To be tested is to discern whether or not something is counterfeit or authentic. Now, trust me, this doesn't happen to me too often, but when I go into a store to buy something and I give them a $100 bill, what do they do? They hold it up to the light, right? Or, or, or they take that fancy marker and they mark it to make sure it's genuine. Because believe it or not, people actually try to use counterfeit money. Shocking, huh? But that's a test, right? Now, to be tempted is to lure someone into evil or to solicit evil. The devil tried to solicit evil from Jesus, Remember? Now, something we all have in common is that we will never escape temptation, right? Because contrary to some TBN preacher's doctrine, we will never become able to not sin. We learn that God does indeed cause bad and evil circumstances to test the genius of our faith. That's true. He is totally 100% sovereign over every pen that falls to the ground. To that degree, Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, or more modern translations say, The dice are thrown. Right? We don't cast lots anymore, we have dice. Or maybe we have rock, scissors, paper. The dice are thrown in the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Wow! Colossians 1, Hebrews 1 says, He upholds all things by the word of His power. Therefore, He is omnipotent. And if He's omnipotent, all-powerful, that means nothing happens that He doesn't have the power to control. And if we're going to be consistent in, in our theology there, that, that all means all, right? And because our God is a personal God... He's intimately involved in the affairs of men, causing all things, even the bad, to happen for our ultimate good or his glory and his glory. So God does test us. Okay, we established that very clearly in the last two messages. But does God tempt people? 
Does God tempt people? Well, let's allow James to be our authority. He says, he says I, I forbid anyone to say I am being tempted by God. I forbid anyone to say I am being tempted by God. Here, it's plainly revealed that God is not the source of temptation for anyone, period. He is the source of testing, but not tempting. Here's what one insightful commentator had to say about what James is getting at. Okay, quote, James, his concern is to help his readers resist the temptation that comes along with trial. For every trial brings temptation. Financial difficulty can tempt us to question God's providence in our lives. The death of a loved one can tempt us to question God's love for us. The suffering of the righteous poor and the ease of the wicked rich can tempt us to question God's justice or even his existence. Have you known that to be true? Is temptation, is the temptation you experience been the most when you're in a season of intense trial? I know it is for me. Yet it, it would be sin for me and for you to say that you are being tempted by God, your Father. It would be a sin to think that He wants you to fail. It would be a sin to think for one second that God's goal in your testing is to get you to do evil. In the same spirit of Matthew 7, Jesus told the Pharisees, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... Would any loving father aim to lead his child into evil? Absolutely not. Neither would our Heavenly Father. Now, why would God never do such a thing? Well, here's where your theology lesson comes in, okay? Because it would be contrary to his nature. Look back in your Bible. For God cannot be tempted by evil. That is to say that God is without the capacity for temptation. He is invincible to assaults of evil. Evil is inherently foreign to God, and he has absolutely no vulnerability, vulnerability to it. None. He is aware of it, but untouched by it, like a sunbeam shining on the dump is untouched by the trash. And, since evil is foreign to God's nature, he himself does not tempt anyone. He never seeks to induce sin or destroy faith. You must understand that temptation is an impulse to sin, and since God is not susceptible to any such desire for evil... He cannot be seen as desiring that it would be brought about man. So we, should, we could ask, how could a perfectly good being have the desire to, to see men do evil? It would be contrary to his nature. Now at this point, one may object and cite Matthew 6.13, okay? Fair question. And say, Jesus told us in his apostles' prayer, 
or Lord's Prayer, what it's commonly referred to as. Jesus told us to ask the Father, lead us not into temptation. So what's that all about? Well, Jesus wasn't saying that we are to assume God can and desires to tempt us. He was, he was saying that we should ask our Father to not lead us into a testing that could become unbearable temptation to evil. Okay, so the temptation, as we're saying here, more often than not, comes about in a season of testing. So Jesus was asking, is telling his disciples to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. They're, at, they're asking, or Jesus was saying, ask the Father not to lead us into a trial that could become unbearable temptation to evil. Fill in the blank for you, whatever that is. Whatever, whatever weakness you have in your life, whether it's physical lust, whether it's the propensity to seek after material things, whether it's popularity, whether it's your physical bodily image that, is, that has, has, has uh, the propensity to become a temptation to get you to sin. Pray that God in His providence would keep you from that sort of testing so that you don't go into temptation. Because God allows the trials in which temptation can occur. But it would be gross error to think that He entices people to sin. So the first point here, temptation does not come from God. The second truth about the theology of temptation reveals the true origin of temptation. Okay? Secondly, temptation comes from within. The second truth about the theology of temptation is that temptation comes from within. Verses 14 and 15. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Now this word lust here, Lust is from epimuthia, which literally means to desire greatly, to have strong desire or longing. The word is oftentimes used in Scripture to refer to sinful, carnal, impure, or immoral desire. Like in 1 Peter 1, verse 14, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance. And in Ephesians 2, verse 3, Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. But it could be used, this word epimuthia, could be used to refer just to wanting something general. It doesn't have to mean something unwholesome. Depending on the context, it could refer to just having a general longing of something. In actuality, it can refer to something quite good. For example, Paul in Philippians 1.23 wrote, But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire, epimuthia, to depart and be with Christ, for that's much better. So there's the same word used in the context of wanting to go to heaven. 
And you know what Paul was saying there? It's better to desire, lust for, our future life in heaven more than our current life on earth. It's good to desire that. And I hope you do desire that. So here's my point in explaining to you the semantic range of this word, okay? It's not bad to have desires, per se. It is bad to lust for the wrong things. And knowing what the nature of your heart is like, deceitful, bent towards wicked, you need to be very careful about controlling every desire you have. Even if the thing you desire is not sinful in and of itself, you need to ask yourself, can that desire, as James says, entice me and carry me away? Because that's what ungodly lust will do. He says, carried away and enticed. They're closely related, but they each describe different aspects of the temptation process. The first term has the meaning of drawing away and was used as a hunting term to refer to a baited trap designed to lure an animal into it. Enticed, similar in meaning to the former, commonly referred to the bait used on a fishing line. Now think about this for a second. What is the hunter and fisherman's goal? You ever stop to think about that, really? His goal is to lure the defenseless creature from safety, by deceit, with bait, too attractive to resist, with the intention of killing it. You're a hunter and a, or a fisherman, you're a killer. <laughs> we don't do that in Alaska. That's, unfor- that's forbidden. But he's using these hunting fisher- uh, fisherman terms to, to, to paint a picture here. He's saying, James is saying that the temptation, which, ori- which originates from our own depraved mind, is like the hunter fisherman and you are the gullible creature. That is to say, we succumb to temptation when our own lust lures us toward evil things that are irresistible to the fleshly desire. Now in verse 15, note that there is an unstoppable progression that only begins with succumbing to temptation. Okay, The progression is illustrated using the process of childbirth. Okay? So ladies might get this a little bit better than us men. First you have the desire in verse 14. Then, as we see in verse 15, desire is the mother of sin. The next step after desire. If it is not mortified at that stage, then comes conception. Conception, like in the physical realm... Once a child is conceived, what's to follow? The birth, right? Spiritually speaking, what we're about to see unfold here is that you start with desire, then conception, then birth, and then what's birth spiritually? Sin. And then what is the natural result of sin? Death. And we'll see what kind of death 
James is talking about when we get to the end of verse 15. But look at verse 15 in the beginning. When lust, the bad kind, epimuthia, has conceived. In other words, think of offspring being produced, right? Now, to better understand this concept, I, I'm, I, want, to, I want to do this by way of a, a little lengthy illustration, okay? Something that I think we can all relate to at some degree. As Americans, what do most of us desire at some point in our life? A house. Part, part of the American culture, owning a house is kind of like a rite of passage, right? It's a, it's a, it's a notch in the belt. It's a, it's a milestone for us. And that's not bad. So picture that you picture yourself in this in this scenario. You drive past a model home you've always wanted. And you think, I have a few spare minutes, so I'll just go and take a peek. And you walk into this model home, and to your astonishment, the property is exactly what you've always fantasized about. Right? Because, come on, we've all thought about that house that we could have if we, we would want, if we could have it, right? This house has everything you've ever dreamed of. It has the, the amount and size of bedrooms you want. It has the luxurious master bathroom. It has the most up-to-date eye-popping flooring, countertops, cabinets, and appliances. It comes with a three-car garage to store all your junk, right? Some of you might need a four-car garage for that. <laughs> Maybe a barn on the side, okay. Now we know what Don's fantasy house is. But, you know, but there's got a pool in the back. Maybe here we don't need a pool, but just say it's got an underground pool. That's just cool, right? Which is beautiful, and, it's, and, and you, it comes with a yard that's beautifully and professionally landscaped. But wait, that's not all. There's more. Your house comes completely furnished with the exact kind of furniture that suits your very fine and elegant taste. Sound pretty good, isn't it? And for one second, you say to yourself, I know I can't have this house, but boy, do I want it. Step one, desire. What are you going to do? You begin to think hard and analyze every method and approach possible to get that house. Then you begin to rationalize by cutting corners to save money. You decrease your giving. You get an extra job on the side and work overtime. You begin to borrow money that you really shouldn't be borrowing from people. And when you begin to rationalize by cutting corners, the lust for the house of your dreams has conceived something. Step two. And then step three. What's step three? It gives birth to sin. Suddenly, the actions you took at first, which were gray at best, you know, you can't say it's sinful to work overtime. You can't say it's sinful to get a side job to save a buck. It's gray, though, because your motive could be sinful. But you realize that that's not enough. It's not getting you into that house that's just waiting for you soon enough because 
The lust for the house of your dreams has dominated your thinking, time, energy, and resources. Now you begin to start skipping church altogether. To work on Sundays. You begin to neglect your family. And you even start to consider the thought of doing something immoral to make a few extra pennies. And now you're living in open sin. So you see the progression in this scenario. Finally, if this progression is not interrupted by repentance, the end is not good. Step four in verse 15. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Now here we see a harsh reality that unbelievers hate and mock. And honestly, we know many professing believers deny and ignore. The truth that life has its consequences. And the scripture teaches us that the natural effect of sin is death. And for the unrepentant, there will come a time of physical death when the soul and body are separated and spiritual death separating the soul from God forever. That's what James is talking about. Now one thing is commonly ignored uh, one thing that's commonly ignored about this truth with regard to death, okay? And, and the death and life of a believer, okay? Because James is not saying here that you as a believer get to the point where you start skipping church or um, doing something immoral to get your desire. James is not saying that it's impossible for a weak and immature believer to get to that stage, That's not what he's saying. He's saying that if that process goes uninterrupted, that should tell you something. Something that you won't come to a full understand until it's too late. Because remember, this book, the theme of this book is true faith works. If you're in a season where you don't come to repentance through the confrontation of the Word of God or from another brother in Christ, then the last step is inevitable. But there is a sense in which believers caught in that fourth stage can still be punished physically. A believer who persists in sin, even though he has eternal life, can still pay the penalty of physical death. First Corinthians one, excuse me, first Corinthians eleven, verses twenty nine and thirty. Paul wrote, For he who eats and drinks, in the context of communion, of the Lord's Supper, he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick. What's he say next? And a number sleep. And a number sleep. That means they're dead. Why are they dead? Because they have not judged themselves rightly and took the cup in an unworthy manner. 
So there are, there are times when God will take a life of a believer for unrepentant sin. So let's review here real quick. The progression that follows temptation. Desire, conception, sin, and death. So what do we do with this theology of temptation? Okay? I, I, I want to I spend a little bit more time than normal on the application here. I want to give you a couple of takeaways from today's message. First, I want you to understand that the source of temptation and the nature of evil in the world is not from God. Understand that the source of temptation and nature of evil in the world is not from God. This theology is very important because if if you are duped into thinking that God tempts you as if he wants you to fail, then it will severely affect your relationship with him. Wrong thinking about this will also crush your faith and confidence in God. And you'll doubt his love and uh, pure intentions for you as his child. If you believe that God can tempt you or desires to tempt you, leads you to sin and evil, then what you're doing is you're creating a pagan view of God. Not a biblical one. To reduce the one true and living God to the image of a mythological Greek god or goddess who uses people for their own sinister games is just folly. You read about Greek mythology, the stuff that they actually believed in this time. All of the Greek gods, they might have some quote-unquote divine attribute, but they also have a lot of fallen human attributes. They're always fighting and bickering amongst each other and, and having competitions and using humans for their own little, like pawns, their own little chess game. Our God is not like that. He is, he is inherently good. And that which is inherently good by nature cannot do anything that even smells of evil. Secondly, I'm going to spend a little bit more time on this one. It's very humbling. And I'm saying this because I love you. It applies to me too. Don't blame anyone else for your failures. Don't blame anyone else for your spiritual failures. This includes blaming the devil. You cannot blame the forces of darkness for your sin. That will not hold up in God's courtroom. Adolf Hitler did not stand before God's bar and say, God, the devil may be called a Jews. That's not going to hold up with you either. You're not going to stand before God and say, I cheated my wife this way because she was so mean and the devil had a foothold in our house. No. The plain reading of Scripture teaches us that when we fall into temptation and sin, we have no one to point the figure at. We have to point the thumb. Now, to illustrate this, I want you to turn, if you have a Bible, to 2 Samuel 12. Go ahead and turn there. 2 Samuel 12. I want you to see this. And I want you to see the passion come out of the text, not just from me. 
2 Samuel 12. After David, the man who the Bible calls a man after God's own heart, right? Fell hard to temptation and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. 2 Samuel 12 gives us the record of who he blamed for his catastrophic failure. And catastrophic is an understatement. But before he got to that point, David thought he literally got away with murder. It took a friend to go to him and to help him see the, the, the unimaginable error of his ways. 2 Samuel 12, verse 1. Follow along with me. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David. This is after he had taken Bathsheba to be his wife and had Uriah killed. And he came to him and said, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom. And it was like a daughter to him. This poor man was like, you know, the crazy cat lady who had all these cats and she treated him like a child, right? It was, it was a family pet. Now verse 4, a traveler came to the rich man. And he was unwilling to take from his own flock and his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger burned greatly. Oof! In the Hebrew, that means he was like red-hot fuming angry. His anger burned greatly against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely that man deserves to die. Wow. Think about that. All the rich man did was steal a little ewe lamb. And he deserved to die for that, says the king. Pretty harsh, huh? Well, in verse 6, David goes on and says he must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. Now, I'm sure David expected his buddy Nate to go ahead at the very least and say something like, man, that's a righteous judgment, David. I'll, I'll make sure that happens. But that's not what David heard, did he? He heard one of the harshest rebukes you can read in Scripture. Verse 7. Nathan then said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel. It is I who anointed you king over Israel. And it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had not, if that had been too little, I would have added to you many things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? 
You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. And I will even take your wives from your eyes and give them to your companion. And he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. This background there? The place where David first saw Bathsheba and lusted for her is the same place that his own son would lie with his wives. Verse 12, Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. Now put yourself in David's shoes here. This would have been the perfect opportunity to do what Adam did. It was that lady you gave me. He could have blame shifted and say, Lord, Bathsheba was bathing where I could see her. And if she hadn't done that, I wouldn't be in this mess. And like many evangelicals today, he could have said, the devil was on my back and tempted me to do it. But then we get to verse 13. Then David said, and this was his immediate response. Notice the first word. What's that first word in his response? I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. In Psalm 51, he says, I have sinned against you and you only. He didn't just sin against God only, literally. He sinned against his entire nation by doing what he did. But he was saying that the chief wrong here is the sin against God. He blamed himself for his sin. He took full responsibility for his actions. And guess what? What I'm saying is, so should we. To conclude this, James vehemently opposes the notion that God is somehow culpable for our failures to resist temptation. He also opposes the foolish notion that Satan himself is lurking around every corner, waiting and watching for the opportunity to cause us to stumble. When we fall to sin, it's because of our own hearts. Now, what's the proper response to temptation? I'm going to close with this quote from Puritan John Owen. John Owen wrote, Occasions and opportunities for temptation are innumerable. No wonder I do not know how deeply involved I have been with sin. Therefore, on God alone, I will rely for my keeping. I will continually look to Him. To resist temptation... Look to Christ. Look to His example. Look to His holiness. Look to His strength. Follow Him. Obey Him. And you will be able 
to mortify that desire before it gets past step one. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that we can have the ability to resist temptation because we have your spirit, because we have your word. Thank you so much for our time together. We pray that you bless us and protect us from evil. Pray that you give us the grace to resist temptation in our life every day so that we do not become entangled by sin and die. We love you and we thank you for your grace in Jesus' name.